all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. What's happening, Star Wars Warriors? It's me, Kyle, your guide on this interstellar escapade that is known as Star Wars Audio Archives. We're about to dive into the heart-pounding, star-shimmering second part of Light of the Jedi. Imagine we are speeding through the galaxy, stars and planets whizzing by. The Force is strong with us today. As we unveil the mysteries and face the challenges of the High Republic, will our heroes triumph against the dark forces? The suspense is as thick as the swamp on Dagobah. Today's episode promises to make your heart race, moments of bravery that will have you cheering louder than a pod racer's crowd. So are you ready to join the Jedi on their epic quest? Then let's lock that spoils in attack position, because this journey is about to get exciting. So get set for liftoff, and may the Force be with us all. Hetzal Prime, in orbit, 80 minutes to impact. Bell Zetaphon felt the first licks of atmosphere touch the craft. Their vector didn't have a name. Not officially. All the ships were basically the same, and in theory interchangeable among their Jedi operators. But he and his master always used the same one, with the scoring along the wings from an ion storm they'd once flown through. The pattern looked like little starbursts, and so Bell, only in his mind, never spoken aloud called their ship the Nova. The Vectors were as minimally designed as a starship could be. Little shielding, almost no weaponry, very little computer assistance. Their capabilities were defined by their pilots. The Jedi were the shielding, the weaponry, the minds that calculated what the vessel could achieve and where it could go. Vectors were small, nimble, a fleet of them together was a sight to behold. The Jedi inside coordinating their movements via the Force, achieving a level of precision no droid or ordinary pilot could match. They looked like a flock of birds, or perhaps fallen leaves swirling in a gust of wind, all drawn in the same direction, linked together by some invisible connection, some force. Bell had seen an exhibition on Coruscant once, as part of the temple's outreach programs. Three hundred vectors moving together. Gold and silver darts shining in the sun above Senate Plaza. They split apart, and wove into braids, and whipped past one another at incredible, impossible speed. The most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. People called it a drift. A drift of vectors. But now, the Nova was flying alone, with just two Jedi aboard. Him, Jedi apprentice Bell Zetafar, and up ahead in the pilot's seat, his master, Loden Greatstorm. The Jedi contingent aboard the Third Horizon had split up, vectors heading to locations all over the system. There were too many tasks to be accomplished, and too little time. Their destination was the largest inhabited planetary body, Hetzal Prime. Their assignment, vague but crucial, help. Bell glanced out the viewport to see the curve of the world below, green and gold and blue. A beautiful place, at least from this height. Down on the surface, he suspected things might be different. Drive signatures from starships could be seen all the way to the horizon. A mass exodus of vessels heading off-world. The Nova and a few other vectors and Republic longbeams he could see here and there were the only ships heading inward to the planet. Entering the upper atmosphere, Bell, Loden said, not turning. You ready? You know I love this part, Master, Bell said. Great Storm chuckled. The ship dived, or fell. It was hard to tell the difference. A roar filtered in from outside as space transitioned to atmosphere. The precision manufactured leading edges of the Vector's wings sliced the air as finely as any blade, 
but even they encountered some resistance. The Nova tore its way through the highest level of Hetzal Prime's atmosphere. No, not tore. Loden Greatstorm was too fine a pilot for that. Some Jedi used their vectors that way, but not him. He wove the craft, sliding through the air currents, riding them down, letting the ship become just another part of the interplay of gravity and wind above the planet's surface. The ship wanted to fall, and Great Storm let it. It was exhilarating, deadly, unsurvivable, and the Vector was designed to transmit every last vibration and shimmy to the Jedi inside so they could let the Force guide them to the best response. Bell clenched his hands into fists. His face stretched into a grin. Spectacular, he said without thinking. His master laughed. <laughs> Nothing to it, Bell. I just pointed us at the planets. Gravity centering the wrist. A long, gliding curve, smooth like the bend of a river. And then the Nova straightened out, now close enough to the planet's surface that Bell could make out buildings, vehicles, and other smaller features below. It looked so peaceful. No indication of the disaster in progress in the system. Nothing but the increasing number of ships launching from the surface. Where should we put down? Bell said. Did Master Chris tell you? It was left to our discretion, Great Storm replied, glancing to one side. His profile dark, craggy, mountain-like. His twilight leku sweeping back from his skull. His eyes tracked the drive trails from the ongoing planetary evacuation. We help any way we can. But it's a whole planet! How will we know where to- You tell me, kid, Loden said. Find me somewhere to go. Training? Bell asked. Training. Loden Greatstorm's philosophy as a teacher was very simple. If Bell was theoretically capable of something, even if Loden could do it ten times as fast and a hundred times more skillfully, then Bell would end up doing that thing, not Loden. If I do everything, no one learns anything, his master was fond of saying. Loden didn't have to do everything, but Bell would have been fine if occasionally he did something. Being the apprentice to the Great Great Storm was an endless gauntlet of impossible tasks. He had been training at the Jedi Temple for 15 of his 18 years, and it had never been easy. But being Loden's Padawan? was on an entirely different level. Every day, without exception, pushed him to his limits. Any personal time Bell ever got was spent desperately collapsing into the deepest sleep of his life until it all began again. But he was learning. He was better now than he was even six months ago at everything. Bell knew what his master wanted him to do. Another impossible task. But he was a Jedi, or getting there, and through the Force, all things were possible. He closed his eyes and opened his spirit, and there it was, the small light within him that never stopped burning, always at least a candle flame, and sometimes, if he concentrated, it could surge up into a blaze. A few times, he'd felt as bright as the sun. So much light pouring through him, he was afraid he might go blind. Honestly, though, it didn't matter. From Spark to Inferno, any connection to the Force chased away the shadows. Bell delved into the light within himself, feeling for the connection points to other life, other repositories of the Force on the planet below. Very near to him, he felt a source of great power and energy. It was currently banked, like coals in a fire, but enormous reservoirs of strength were clearly available if needed. This was his master, Loden. Bell pushed on past him, 
He was looking for something else. There. Like a long-distance hollow coming into focus when the signal finally gained enough strength. The force web connecting the minds and spirits of Hetzal Prime's billions snapped into Bell's mind. It wasn't an entirely clear picture. More like impressions. A map of emotional zones. Not so different from the patchwork of cropland flashing along far below the Nova. Mostly what he sensed was panic and fear. Emotions the Jedi worked very hard to purge from themselves. According to the teachings, a true Jedi's only contact with fear was supposed to be sensing it in other beings. A common enough experience. Bell had felt those reflected emotions many times. But always alongside love and hope and surprise and many shades of joy. The spectrum of feelings inherent in all beings. Well, usually. On Hetzal Prime, at this moment, it pretty much was just panic and fear. Bell wasn't surprised. He'd heard the evacuation order. System scale disaster in progress. All beings are immediately ordered to depart the Hetzal system by any available means and remain at a minimum safe distance. No explanation, no warning, and the math had to be obvious to everyone. Billions of people, and clearly not enough starships to evacuate all of them? Who wouldn't panic? On a world seething with that sort of negative energy, it was hard to think of what two Jedi would be able to accomplish. But Loden Greatstorm had set Bell a task, and so he continued to reach out. Seeking a place they could help. Something. A knot of tension. Coiled. Dense. A conflict. A question. A feeling of things not being as they should. A sense of injustice. Bell opened his eyes. East, he said. If there was injustice out there, well... They would bring justice. The Jedi were justice. The Nova banked, accelerating smoothly under Loden's control. Bell's master did let him fly, occasionally. The ship could be controlled from either seat. But the Vectors required almost as much skill to handle as a lightsaber. Under the circumstances, Bell was happy to let Loden take the lead. Instead, he served as navigator, using his still strong connection to the Force to guide their vector toward the area of intense conflict he had sensed, calling out directions to Loden, fine-tuning the ship's path. We should be directly above it, Bell said. Whatever it is. I see it, Loden said. His voice clicked. Tight. Ordinarily, his words carried a smile, even when delivering a brutal critique of Bell's Jedi scholarship. Not now. Whatever Bell was sensing, he knew Master Greatstorm could feel it too, and probably on a more intense level. Down on the surface, just below where the Vector circled, people were going to die. Maybe already had. Loden banked the ship again as he flew in a tight circle, giving them both a clear look at the ground through the transparisteel of the Nova's cockpit bubble. A hundred meters below was a compound of some kind, walled, large but not enormous, probably the home of a wealthy individual or family rather than a government facility. A huge crush of people surrounded the walls, focused around the gates, a single glance gave Bell the reason. Docked inside the compound was a large starship. It looked like a pleasure yacht, big enough to comfortably hold 20 or 30 passengers plus crew. And if the passengers didn't care about comfort, the yacht could probably cram in 10 times that many people. The ship had to be visible from ground level, 
Its hull protruded above the compound walls. And the people crowding the gates clearly thought it was their only way off-world. Armed guards posted on the walls at all sides seemed to feel differently. As Bell watched, a blaster bolt shot into the air from near the gate. A warning shot, thankfully. But it was clear that the time for warnings was rapidly coming to an end. The tension in the crowd was mounting, and you didn't need to be a Jedi to tell. Why aren't they letting the people in? Bell asked. That ship could get plenty of them to safety. Let's find out, Loden said. He flipped a toggle switch on his control panel. The cockpit bubble slid smoothly back, vanishing into the Nova's hull. Loden turned back, smiling. The wind whipping past them both, sending Loden's Leku and Bell's dreadlocks streaming out from their heads. See you down there, he said. Remember, gravity does most of the work. Then, he jumped out. Hetzal System. Republic Longbeam Aurora 9. 75 minutes to impact. You sure about this, Captain? Petty Officer Inaman said, pointing at his screen, which displayed the rough path of one of the hyperspace anomalies as it sped toward the center of the system. We need to shoot this thing down before it kills someone. Maybe a lot of someones. The problem is that our targeting computers can't calculate the trajectory. The anomaly's moving too fast. At best, I'd say we have a one in three chance of hitting the target. Captain Bright shook his head, his tentacles rustling against his shoulders. He knew he should probably reprimand Inamin for questioning his orders. The kid did it all the time. He was young for a human, little more than two decades old, and as a rule thought he knew better. Bright usually let him get away with it. Life was too short, and the ships they flew were, on balance, too small to bring unnecessary tension into the mix. A thoughtful question from time to time wasn't exactly insubordination. One in three, he thought. He didn't know exactly what he'd expected, just better than one in three odds that they could actually accomplish their mission. The long beam, call sign Aurora 9, was state-of-the-art. A brand new design from the Republic shipyards on Hosnian Prime. It wasn't a warship per se, but it was no pushover either. The vessel had distributed processors that could handle multiple target firing solutions and prepare a spread of blaster fire, missiles, and defensive countermeasures in a single salvo. Not too hard on the eyes either. Bright thought it looked like one of the hammerfish he used to hunt back home on Gleansel. A thick, blunt skull tapering into a single, elegant, sinuous tail fin. It was a tough, beautiful beast, no doubt about it. On the other hand, their target, one of the mysterious objects racing through the Hetzal system, was moving at a velocity near light speed. It had whipped out of hyperspace like a red-hot pellet fired from a slug thrower. The Aurora 9 might be state-of-the-art, but that didn't mean the ship could work miracles. Miracles were for the Jedi. And they were apparently otherwise occupied at the moment. Fire six missiles, Bright ordered. Inaman hesitated. That's our full complement, sir. Are you sure? Bright nodded. He gestured at Inaman's cockpit display. A red threat indicator. The projectile on a collision path with a larger green disk, representing a solar collection station equidistant from all three of the Hetzal system's suns. The thing was still some distance away, but moving closer with every moment. The anomaly is headed straight for that solar array. The data we got from Hetzal Prime says the station has seven crew aboard. We can't get there in time to evacuate before it gets hit, but our missiles can. If we have a one-in-three chance at shooting the object down, then sending six doubles our chances. Still not perfect odds, but... The final member of his crew, Ensign Peoples, buzzed his proboscis as if he were about to speak, but Bright waved him off, continuing without stopping. 
Yes, peoples, I know that math is off. I'm mostly worried about a different equation. If we fire six missiles, we might save seven people. Let's see what we can do. The Aurora 9's targeting systems chugged along. Not seeming quite so state-of-the-art now, as the deadly red dot crept closer to people trapped on a solar farm with no way to escape. The long beam zoomed toward the array at its own top speed, narrowing the distance its weapons had to travel. Sort of an interesting problem of trajectory and acceleration and physics. Something that awakened Bright's own three-dimensional instincts built on much of a life lived underwater. He shook his head again, rustling the cloud of thick green tentacles that emerged from the back of his skull. Angry at himself for getting distracted when people out there were praying for their lives. The missiles fired. Six quick hoofs transmitted to the ship's head and the Aurora 9 was down to lasers only. The weapons shot away, leaving thin trails of smoke behind to mark their path. They were out of visual range in an instant, accelerating to their max velocity in seconds. Missiles away, Hamlin said. Now it was up to that fancy distributed processor and whether it had successfully transmitted effective firing solutions to the missiles. Maybe all six would hit, it wasn't impossible. The deck crew looked as one at the display screen tracking the six missiles, the fast-moving anomaly, their own ship, and the solar array that was rapidly becoming the collision point for all nine objects. The first of the missiles blinked out on the screen. Nothing else changed. Missile one is a miss, Inaman said unnecessarily. Two more missiles vanished. Bright held up a hand before Inaman could speak again. We can all see, petty officer, he said. Two more misses, leaving one. All else remained unchanged. The last missile banished from the display, nowhere near the incoming anomaly. A communal sigh of despair washed across the bridge. Blasters? Bright asked, knowing the answer. I'm sorry, sir, Ensign Peoples said, his voice a high-pitched, reedy whine. Even the best gunner in the universe couldn't make that shot, and I would guess I'm barely in the top ten. Bright sighed. People's species had a radically unique understanding of humor. Not the jokes themselves, which were often decent enough, but the appropriate moment to deploy them. Thank you, Ensign, Bright said. The solar array was now visible in the viewscreen. A large spindly structure, like one of the feather corals back in Bright's home sea. Hundreds of long arms arranged in a spiral, spinning out from a central sphere in which the crew lived and worked. Each of those arms fitted with collection eyes along its length blinking and rotating slowly as they drank in the light of the three suns that gave Hetzal Prime and its satellite worlds their uniquely long-growing seasons. The array fed the sunlight back to the crop worlds, storing and beaming it down through proprietary technology that was the pride of the system. The array was beautiful. Bright had never seen anything quite like it. It looked grown. And maybe it was. Supposedly every crop in the galaxy could grow somewhere on the worlds of Hetzal. Perhaps that extended to space stations. Then, a bright streak, too fast to process even with eyes as capable as Bright's large, dark orbs, designed by evolution to pick out details in the lightless depths of the seas of Gliancel. In an instant, the solar array was destroyed. One moment it was intact, performing its function. The next, it was ablaze. Half the collection arm shattered, drifting slowly away into space. The central sphere remained, though flames washed across its outer hull, the muted dance of fire and zero gravity. As Bright watched, the array's exterior lighting blinked, flickered, and went out. Bright put a hand to his forehead. He blinked, too. Once, slowly. 
Then he turned to his crew. We don't know for sure that the people aboard that station are dead, he said, looking at his crew's solemn faces. I would like to try to attempt a rescue, but that... Here he pointed at the viewscreen at the wrecked, burning array, getting larger as the Aurora 9 approached. Could collapse at any moment, or explode, or implode. I don't know. The point is, if we're docked when it goes, we're dead too. Bright tapped one of his tentacles with a fingertip. I'm not a lin. A fact of which I'm sure you're both aware. Green skin, big black eyes. What else would I be? What you might not know is that these tentacles of mine let me pick up pheromones from other beings, which I translate into an understanding of their emotional states. That's how I know you two are terrified. Peoples opened his mouth, then somehow miraculously thought better of making a joke and closed it again. I get that you're scared, Bright went on, but we have a duty. I know it, and you both know it too. We need to do this. Inamin and Peoples looked at each other, then back at their captain. We're all the Republic, right? Inamin said. Bright nodded. He smiled, showing his teeth. Indeed we are, Petty Officer. He pointed at Peoples. Ensign, take us in. Hetzal system, above the fruited moon, 70 minutes to impact. Three Jedi vectors and a Republic long whips through space, slingshotting around the orange and green sphere that was the fruited moon of Hetzal, legendary throughout the galaxy for its bounty. Four billion people resided there, farming and growing and living their lives. All would be dead in less than 30 minutes if the four Jedi and two Republic officers could not destroy or somehow divert the object headed directly for the moon. The anomaly was on the larger side, bigger than the Longbeam, and on a collision course with the moon's primary landmass. Due to its velocity, a significant portion of the moon's outer layer would be instantly vaporized on impact, surging into the atmosphere. Then would come the heat, the flames scouring the surface clean of all life, plant and animal and sentient alike. That's assuming the whole blasted moon doesn't just shatter when the anomaly hits, Teami thought as she banked her ship smoothly following a precise curve with the other two vectors, piloted by her Jedi colleagues, performing the maneuver as much through her connection to the Force as her hands on the control sticks. Total destruction of the Fruited Moon wasn't impossible. The amount of energy transferred upon the object's impact would fall like a hammer blow on the little planetoid. Worlds seemed unbreakable when you were standing on them, but Teami had seen things in her day. The galaxy didn't care what you thought couldn't be broken. It would break things just to show you it could. The little fleet was moving at incredible velocity, headed directly for the anomaly. Master Chris, back on the Third Horizon, had designated this as a high-priority mission, which Teami understood. Four billion people. A high priority, indeed. She could feel Avar at the back of her mind. Not in words, more of a sense of the woman's presence. Master Chris had a skill set rare among the Jedi. She could detect the natural bonds between Force users and strengthen them. Use them almost as a sort of communications network. It was inexact, best for transmitting sensations, locations, but it was still a useful ability particularly in a scenario when a hundred Jedi were all trying to save a system at once. Not just useful, though. It was comforting. She was not alone. None of them were. Fail or succeed, the Jedi were in this together. But we will not fail, Teami thought. 
She reached out a long green finger and flipped one of the finely wrought switches on her console. Her comm toggled open. Republic Longbeam, it's time. I need you to transfer your FN systems to my control, she said. Acknowledged, came the reply from the Longbeam, spoken by its pilot, Joss Adrian. His wife, Pika, was in the co-pilot seat. Tayami didn't know them personally, only that they weren't part of the Third Horizon's crew, and had volunteered their help immediately when the cruiser dropped into the system and the scale of the disaster became clear. Admiral Cronara assigned them a long beam. Better to put another ship out there to help instead of leaving it sitting idle in its hangar. The little bit of non-task-oriented chatter on the way out to the Fruited Moon had suggested Joss and Pika were contractors of some kind. Workers on the Starlight Beacon hitching a ride back to the core now that their job was done. They seemed like good people. Tayami hoped they were skilled as well. This would not be easy. An amber light flashed on Tayami's display, then went steady. Weapons are under your control, Joss said. Thank you, she said then flipped another few switches before quickly moving her hands back to the sticks. Vectors could be tricky craft. The fluid responsiveness of the controls meant they could accomplish incredible maneuvers, but only if significant focus could be maintained. All right, my friends, she said. Are we ready? The replies came in across the Jedi-only channel. The low voice of Mikkel Sutmani rumbled from her speakers, immediately translated into BASIC via the onboard systems. Good to go, he said. Mikkel, the steadiest Ithorian she had ever met. He never said much, but the job always got done. We're ready as well, said Nibasik, the third and final Jedi Knight in their little squadron. Her Padawan, Buryaga Agaburi, didn't say anything. No surprise there. He was a young Wookiee, and spoke only Shriwook, though he understood basic. Nib spoke his language well. She had learned it specifically to take him on as her apprentice. It wasn't easy for a human throat to recreate the warbling growls and whines that compose Wookiee speech, but she had made the effort. Tiami and Mikkel, though, could not understand a word Buryaka said. Regardless, if Nib Asik said she and her Padawan were ready, they were. Reach out, Tayami said. We'll do it together, as one. She stretched out her senses through the Force, seeking the deadly meteor, or whatever it was. The scans remained inconclusive, hurtling through space toward them. There. She could feel it. Distorting gravity along its path. She considered thinking about where the object had been, where it was, where it would be. More specifically, where it would be when the full power of the weapon system on the vectors and the long beam hit it all at once. This shot could not be calculated using computers. It had to be done by feel, with the force, by all the Jedi at once in a single moment. I have the targets. She said. Are we good? No answer from the other Jedi. But she didn't need one. She could feel their ascent through the link Master Chris maintained back on the surface of Hetzal Prime. It was faster than speaking. More effective. Let us become spears. She said. Speaking a ritual phrase from her own people, the Duros. Not wanting to take her hands off her control sticks at such a crucial moment, Tayami spared a tendril of the Force and used it to lift her lightsaber from its holster on her belt. Its hilt was dark Cerakote with a heavily tarnished copper crosspiece. The blade, when lit, shone blue. The thing was scratched and gouged with use and had an unsightly blob of solder up near the business end, where she'd welded one of the components back on when it fell off. If there was an uglier lightsaber in the Order, she hadn't seen it. But it turned on when she wanted it to, 
and the kyber crystal that powered it remained as pure and resonant as the day she found it on Ilim so long ago. Could Teami have refreshed the blade if she wanted to? Absolutely. Many Jedi change their hilts regularly, whether due to adjustments to fighting techniques, technological innovations, or even, on occasion, just style, aesthetics, fashion, you could call it. Teami had no interest in any of that. Her lightsaber, ugly as it was, served as a perfect reflection of the great truth of the Force. No matter what a person was on the outside, inside, everyone was made of light. The lightsaber moved through the cramped cockpit. It placed itself against a metal plate on the Vector's control panel with a soft, very satisfying click, staying in place via a tiny localized force field. A low hum vibrated through the ship's hull as its weapon systems activated. A new set of displays and dials went live, glowing with the bright blue of her saber blade. Weapons on a vector could only be operated with a lightsaber key, a way to ensure they were not used by non-Jedi, and that every time they were used, it was a well-considered action. An additional advantage, the ship's laser could be scaled up or down via a toggle on the control sticks. Not every shot had to kill. They could disable, warn, every option was available to them. In this case, though, the settings would be at maximum. They needed to disintegrate the hyperspace anomaly, turn it into vapor, and that would require all three vectors at full power, plus everything the long beam had. One huge blast. It would work. It had to work. Four billion defenseless beings on the fruited moon hung in the balance. Teami reached out again, checking her colleague's readiness. There was something. From the thread leading to Nib Asik's ship. Fear. Uh, almost panic. Nib? I'm sensing, she began, and the reply came before she could finish. I know, Teami, came Nib's voice, calm but perhaps a bit embarrassed. It's Boriaga. He's having a hard time locking down his emotions. I think it's the stress of what we're doing, or the lives at stake. It's all right, little one, came Mikkel's gravelly tones, translated across the column. You are but a Padawan, and we are asking a great deal of you. Teami, can we free him from the burden of helping us calculate the shot? Yes, Teami said. There is no shame in this, Burry. Only an opportunity to learn. Teami reached out with the Force, gently curving the connection away from Nib Asik's Padawan. The Wookiee was silent. She could still feel the roil of emotions from him. Well, no shame, as she had said. Every Jedi found their own path, and some took longer than others. Let's go, Nib said, perhaps trying to make up for the delay caused by her student. We're running out of time. Agreed, Teami said. She moved her thumbs up her control sticks first rolling them along the toggle wheel to tell the weapons system to fire at full power. Then she settled her hands on the triggers. The object speeding toward the moon. Where it had been, where it was, where it would be. The other Jedi were ready. They would fire the moment she did, as would the linked systems in Joss and Pika's long beam every blast heading to precisely the same location in space. Four billion people. It was time. Teami tightened her grip on the triggers. A squeal from the comm system, loud and insistent. A scream, or a yell. Forceful, almost panicked. It startled Teami. And if she were not a Jedi Knight, she might have inadvertently fired her weapons. But she was indeed a Jedi Knight, and did not fire. It took Teami a moment to understand what she was hearing. Not a scream, 
but words in Shrewok. Muriaga saying something she could not understand. Loud, insistent, desperate. His emotions strong again through the force. That same mixture of fear edging on panic. Muriaga, I'm sorry. I don't understand Shrewok. Are you all right? We're running out of time. We have to fire. No, Nebasik said, her voice sharp, insistent. In the background, the whines and the growls of Periaga's voice coming over her calm. We can't attack. What are you talking about? Mikkel said. We don't have a choice. Periaga is explaining to me. The emotions we were getting from him, they weren't his. He was sensing them. He had to tune in a bit, overcome his own fear before he could understand. Please, Nip, just tell us what he means, Teami said. A long, whistling, mournful bit of Shriwok, and then a pause. The object, the one we have to destroy, to save the moon. It's not just an object, it's debris. Part of a ship. Teami let her hands fall from the control sticks. It's full of people, and they're alive. Agire City, Hetzal Prime. Sixty-five minutes to impact. The Force sang to Jedi Master Avar Chris. A choir that was the entirety of the Hetzal system. Life and death in constant contrapuntal motion. It was a song she knew well. She heard it all the time, everywhere she went. Here, the melody of the Force was off. A discordant jangle of death and fear and confusion. People were dying or felt the dread of their imminent demise. Threaded through that song, the Jedi and the brave personnel of the Republic and the heroic citizens of Hetzal itself, using the resources they had to try to save the people of these worlds. The Third Horizon had landed not far from the Ministerial Residence in Aguirre City, the capital of Hetzal Prime. The Republic was coordinating its efforts with the Hetzalian government to try to stem the tide of the disaster, ensuring the evacuation proceeded in as orderly a fashion as possible, tracking the incoming projectiles, helping as they could. Avar Chris was still on the ship's bridge, still serving as the point of connection for the Jedi in the system letting them sense one another's presence and location and emotional states. Sometimes words or images came through unbidden, but only rarely. It was all just a song, and Avar sang and was sung too. Still, she was able to gather a great deal of information from what it told her. She knew that 53 Jedi Vectors were currently active in the Hetzal system. She knew which Jedi were working on the planet. For example, at that moment, Belzedifar, Loden Greatstorm's promising Padawan, was approaching the surface of Hetzal Prime at extraordinary speed. Elzar Mann, her oldest, closest friend in the Order, was at a vector of his own, flying a single-person version of the ship near one of the system's three suns. He was almost always alone. Avar was one of only two Jedi he worked with regularly. It was just her and Stellan Geos. This was mostly because Elzar was... Unreliable wasn't exactly the right word. He was a tinkerer, if that term could apply to Jedi techniques. He never liked to use the Force the same way twice. Elzar's instincts were good, and he didn't try anything too unusual when the stakes were high. Usually, his experiments in Force techniques did expand the Order's understanding, and occasionally, he accomplished incredible things. But sometimes he failed, and sometimes he failed spectacularly. Again, never when lives were on the line. But even that bit of uncertainty 
coupled with Elzar Man's general unwillingness to take the time to explain whatever he was trying to do, well, some in the Order found him frustrating to deal with. Avar believed that might explain his continued status as a Jedi Knight rather than a Master. She knew that bothered Elzar. He thought it was unfair. He didn't care about other Jedi's path through the Force. Why should they concern themselves with his? He just wanted to follow his road where it led. Avar didn't understand Elzar's explorations any more than most of the Jedi. But the key to their relationship was that she never asked him to explain. Anything. Ever. That arrangement had powered their friendship since their days as younglings together in the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. That, and she just liked him. <laughs> he was funny and clever, and they had come up together through the Order. Stellan and Elzar and her. The three of them inseparable through all their years of training. She pulled her mind away from Elzar Man, listening to the Force. She sensed Jedi on the system's worlds, Jedi invectors, and still more on stations or satellites or ships, all around the system, helping wherever they could, usually in conjunction with the 28 Republic longbeams deployed by the Third Horizon. The chain of connection through the Force even told her that others of her order were on their way doing their best to respond to Minister Echo's original distress call, despite being so far from Hexal. Closest was Master Jorah Mali, future commander of the Jedi Quarter on the just-completed Starlight Beacon, along with her second-in-command, the imposing Trandosian Master Skier. Stellan Geos was powering in from his temple outpost on Hynestia, as if summoned by her thoughts of him a few moments before whipping through hyperspace in a borrowed starship. And more besides. Avar sent out a note of welcome, and called to every other Jedi she could reach, near Hetzal or not. Distance was nothing to the Force. Who knew how they might help? So far, the death toll from the disaster was low, barely above the baseline churn of life and death, constantly at work in any large group of beings. She was worried that could change at any moment. They didn't have a good understanding of what was happening here. Nothing about it felt natural. She had never heard of anything like this. A huge spread of projectiles appearing in a system, popping out of hyperspace with no notice. She could not imagine what would have happened here if the Third Horizon was not in transit nearby after a refueling stop or if their inspection tour of the Starlight Beacon wasn't interminably delayed by the project's overseer, an officious Bith named Shai Tenem. She had insisted on showing her Jedi and Republic visitors every last obscure element of Starlight Beacon's construction, pushing back their scheduled departure and irritating Admiral Kronara immensely. But if they had left on time, the Third Horizon would have been deep in the hyperspace when Minister Eka's evacuation order went out. Too far to get to Hetzal in any reasonable amount of time. If not for an overzealous Bith administrator, Hetzal would be dealing with this apocalypse on its own. The Song of the Force. Between what it told Avar directly and the chatter she heard around her from the Third Horizon's deck officers, she was able to maintain an up-to-date picture of the disaster, in all its moments, large and small. Above Hetzal Prime, a Republic technician completed repairs to an evacuation ship that had lost power on its way off-planet, so it could continue on its way to safety. Near the second-largest gas giant, two vectors fired their weapons, and a fragment was incinerated. A long beam pushed past its limits as it raced to reach a damaged station at the system's outer edge. Its engines failed, catastrophically. Avar gasped a little at the cold, dark sensation. And above the fruited moon, one very clear impression 
as close to a message as can be sent through the Force under these circumstances. A sense from a Jedi Knight named Teami that their understanding of what was happening here was utterly, tragically incomplete. No, Avar said, disturbed at the urgency of what Teami was trying to pass along. Her emotions roiled, and a song of the Force shimmered in her mind, becoming quieter, less distinct. Focus, she told herself. You are needed. Avarkris calmed her emotions and listened. Now, thanks to Teami, she knew what to look for. She called the other Jedi's face to her mind. Green skin, high-domed skull, large red eyes. And it took her almost no time to find what Teami had tried to show her. In fact, now that she was looking, it was obvious. Avar spread her awareness through the system, pushing herself to the limit. I can't miss one, she thought. Not a single one. She opened her eyes and unfolded her legs, setting her feet once again upon the Third Horizon's deck. Bridge officers looked at her, surprised. She had not spoken or moved in some time. Admiral Cronara was speaking to Chancellor Lena So who had called in via a high-priority relay from Coruscant. Her delicate, sweeping features were displayed on one of the bridge's calm walls. She looked fragile, which she absolutely was not. Cronara, in contrast, had a face that looked like a hammer would break against it. He looked hard, which he absolutely was. He wore the uniform of the Republic Defense Coalition, light gray with blue accents. The cap tucked under his arm in respect for the Chancellor's office. The resolution on the display was low, with sharp lines of static crossing Lena So's face every few seconds. But that was to be expected. Coruscant was very far away. Thank the light your ship was close enough to Hensel to respond, Admiral, Chancellor So was saying. We sent out eight ships as soon as we could. But even receiving the distress signal from Hensol took time. You know how choppy the calm relays are from the outer rim. I do, Chancellor, Cronara responded. We appreciate anything you can do. We're making progress here, but there will definitely be a large number of wounded. And I'm sure a variety of essential systems will need repair. I'll relay word to Mr. Ecker that you're sending assistance. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. Of course, Admiral. We are all the Republic. Avar walked across the deck, passing Cronara as he ended the transmission to Coruscant. He glanced over at her, curious, as she stopped before the display screen, showing the status of the disaster mitigation effort. All the ships, people, Jedi, Republic, locals. Red, green, blue, worlds... Lives, hope, despair. She tapped certain of the red anomalies on the screen with her fingertip. As she did, they were highlighted, each surrounded with a white circle. When she was done, about ten of the projectiles were indicated. Avar moved back from the display, then turned to look at the bridge crew. They were confused, but polite, waiting for her to explain what she had done. I hate to say this, my friends, she said, but this just got a lot harder. We have a new objective. Admiral Cronara's weathered features twisted into a scowl. Avar did not take it personally. Does it replace the existing mission parameters? He said. That would be nice, she said. But no, we still have to do everything we came here to do. Keep the fragments from destroying Hetzal. But now, there's something else. She gestured at the display with its highlighted red dots racing sunward. The anomalies I've indicated here contain living beings. This is no longer just about saving the worlds of this system. Realization dawned on Cronara's face. His scowl deepened. So it's a rescue mission. On top of everything else. That's right, Admiral. 
Avar said. A chorus of dismayed voices rose up as the officers realized that all their progress thus far was just the preamble to a much greater effort. How is that possible? How many people? Who are they? Are they ships? Is this an invasion? Admiral Cronara held up a hand, and the voices stopped. Master Chris, if you say some of these things have people aboard, then they do. But how do you propose we mount a rescue? These objects are moving at incredible velocities. Our targeting systems can barely hit them as it is. And now we have to... dock with them? Avar nodded. I don't know how we'll do this. Not yet. I'm hoping one of you might have an idea. But I will say that every one of those lives is as important as any life on this world or any other. We must begin by believing it is possible to save everyone. If the will of the Force is otherwise, so be it. But I will not accept the idea of abandoning them without trying. She moved her hands in a broad circle, encompassing the entire display board. This is all you have to work with. What we brought with us. Every Hetzalian ship is occupied with the evacuation effort. So all we've got are the Vectors and the Jedi flying them. Plus the long beams and their crews. Find a way. I know you can. I'll send word to the Jedi. The Force might have an answer for us. The bridge officers looked at one another, then scrambled into motion with a new surge of activity as they began to plan ten utterly impossible rescue missions. Avar Chris closed her eyes. She stepped up into the air. The Force sang to her, telling her of peril and bravery and sacrifice, of Jedi fulfilling their vows, acting as guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy. The song of the Force. Boom, did you catch that? It's like the High Republic just blasted in all light speed and fireworks. My thoughts are doing a loop-to-loop -loop in space, all psyched up about what's to come around the corner. And can you believe it? That was just the second part. I'm revved up like a hoe who accidentally took a vacation on Hoth. Every twist and turn of this story brings us new faces, making this space saga more tangling and thrilling. But hold on, it's our favorite moment. Time for our epic quote of this episode. Grip your space goggles tight, because we're about to hit you with a quote that is as dazzling as a shooting star. Mick Jagger once said, You can't always get what you want, but if you try something, you might find you get what you need. So what does that mean? Let's break it down. Well, it's like if you really want something. Say you want a new phone or a big screen TV, but it's just not possible to have it right now. Maybe it's too expensive or it's just not the right time. That's the part where it says you can't always get what you want. Now here's the twist. Even though you can't always get what you want, if you keep pushing and trying, something else might come up. This something else might be what you originally wanted, but it turns out to be something that you actually need. Like instead of that new phone, maybe you find a good job that helps you save up for it or fix the old phone you have, and it works just fine. That's the if you try something, you might find you get what you need part. In real life, this quote is super useful. It reminds us to keep an open mind and not get too hung up on just one thing we want. Sometimes, what we need is different than what we want, and it can be even better for us in the long run. For example, you might not get into the college you wanted, but you end up in a different school that actually has a way better opportunity for what you are interested in. Or maybe you don't get that job you apply for, but then you find a different job that you end up really loving. So in short, it's all about staying positive and flexible. Keep trying and be open to different outcomes. You might be surprised at what life throws your way that ends up being just what you needed. And that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed diving into part two of Light of the Jedi with me. And I can't wait to have you join me for part three coming your way just in a few days. So until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening and may the force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. The High Republic Light of the Jedi was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>